And finally, we realized what had happened. I was so wrong. I needed to apologize. But the reason for my reaction is that I had interpreted, or I should say misinterpreted, her actions as lawlessness. In other words, this is what you want, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. How about when it's for real? Not a misinterpretation of actions, and not something petty, like chicken and red sauce, but how about when it's for real? How about when we actually say that to God, and violate his character, and violate the way he meant for us to live, and say, okay, yeah, you said that, but I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Like, it's when we don't really, when we're just kind of okay with our sin, and we don't really want to do anything to change it or seek the help from others to change it. We're just kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. I'm going to keep doing it. That's lawlessness. The first principle in this passage, the response of sin, arises from this attitude of lawlessness that's like, I'm just kind of okay with my sin and I'm just going to keep doing it. The second principle is, is woven throughout this passage. But verse 6 is a good representative of it. So let's, let's read verse 6 together. This is the second thing we see about sin in this passage. Verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So the second thing that, about sin in this passage, is that it, it, it's a practice. Notice how this verse 6 says it's something you keep on doing. And then it says, again, you keep on doing it. You do it over and over and over again. It's a practice. This is woven all throughout the passage. Now let's see how it's, how it's woven throughout. Verse 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices righteousness. 6, keeps on sinning. Keeps on sinning. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So, This helps us actually understand what this passage is talking about. Especially if you're reading some other Bible translations like the King's James Version or uh, the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. In verse 9 it says, it says, No one born of God commits sin. Just like boom, just like that. And so if we don't have this understanding of this passage, we can be like, wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that real Christians can never sin? Like, we can no longer sin. No one born of God commits sin. And if that's the case, then I'm out. This helps us understand what this passage is talking about. The context also helps us. So, just so you know, we're going to try to have our noses uh, here in the Scripture a lot this, this morning. Just going back and forth. So, if you can, flip back or scroll back to First John, the first chapter. I'm going to read to you verses 8 through 10. This is the context of chapter 3, where we are. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. So obviously, John... 
the author of this book, anticipates that as Christians, we will have sin in our lives that we need to confess, that we need to repent of. And in fact, if we don't admit that, we're making God a liar. So it's clear that sin will be in our lives, sin that we need to confess. So what this passage, what chapter 3 is talking about, is this practice of sin. This persistent pattern, this persistent habit, this thing that we keep on doing and keep on doing and keep on doing. And I'm not talking about a persistent practice of sin that we struggle with. I think the key word there is struggle. We're doing what we can to turn away from it. We're doing what we can to fight against it. We're actively turning from it. No, this is a practice of sin that arises from that attitude of whatever. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm going to keep on doing. I'm not going to fight it. That's what this is talking about. It really could be anything. You know, it could be abusive speech. And I'm not talking about like taking a tally of every four-letter word, but even deeper than that, speech that hurts people, and we know it, and we're just like, whatever, I'm going to keep on doing it. For sexual sin, we kind of know what God says about that. We're like, well, that, I know that's your law, God, but it is kind of old-fashioned. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. All sorts of things, dishonest dealings at work. This is just what I'm going to do. And we keep on doing it. And we keep on doing it. And we keep on doing it. That's what this passage is talking about. So first, it's talking about an attitude. And then the attitude arises. It gives, it gives way to a practice. Something we do over and over again. And then that leads us to the third thing. The third principle. And uh, we're going to track it. In verses 6, 8, and 9. So let's look chapter 3, verses 6, 8, and 9. No one who abides in him, this is verse 6, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So the third thing we see. The third thing we see is that sin in this passage leads to an examination. It's an attitude, it's a practice, and it leads to an examination. In other words, we put these things together. We say, if I see this attitude in my life, and if I see this practice in my life, I have to ask myself, am I truly a child of God? And I'm, I'm not making this up. I mean, this is what it says. It says... It says, if this is true of us, we have neither seen him or known him. If this is true of us, we are of the devil. In the sense that we're we're showing the same traits that he shows. If this is true of us, verse 9, then we're not born of God. In other words, we're not his children. And And so it's like this gift has been held out to us. And maybe we know we, we don't have interest in it. Maybe we know we, we haven't received it. Or maybe, maybe we've been walking around for so long as if we've received it. Like gone to church for a long time or brought to church for, for a long time. 
and we know the lingo and and we know the answers. But this passage causes us to reflect. Like, am I am I a child of God? In other in other words, have I opened it up and owned it myself? Have I taken it for myself? Have I really embraced this? Or have I been living as if I as if I did? I, I got to tell you, uh, you know, we had several several passages that we could preach from for this Advent series, and uh, I read this passage, and I was like, "Ooh, let's read the others," and uh, <laughs> and I just kept being brought back to this passage. It's like no matter what I did, I just kept being brought back to it. And all of a sudden, I just realized I have to preach this. And so maybe, maybe we need to hear. Maybe we need to hear this and respond to it this morning. Um, because verse 7 says, let no one deceive you. And um, I think that includes ourselves. Like we can fool ourselves. And so this passage helps us ask the question, like, have I really received this gift? And listen, if, if you're a child of God, I don't want you to question this. But if you aren't, I actually do want you to question it. Because that's the only way you'll receive it. And that's the best thing that's ever happened to me. So of course I want that for you. I read this passage and like every impulse inside of me wants to soften it, wants to nuance it. But I think this passage is meant to be strong. It's meant to cause us to reflect, am I a child of God? What response do I see when I look at my life? And at the very least, to come before God and ask. At the very least. I'm not saying boom, boom, boom. This makes you automatically da, 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 da. I'm saying come before God and say, God, is this true of me? What response do I see in my life? So I guess that leads to the next question. How then do we truly live like children of God? What does that response look like? So that's the second response we see woven throughout this passage. The second response is this, righteousness. So we're going to track this theme. It's a little more straightforward than the sin one. So it's the response of righteousness. And we see this in verses 7 and 10. Let's put our noses back in. 7 and 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, in other words, how do we know? How do we know we've received this gift? What is the proof? By this it is evident who are the children of God. Righteousness. It's our righteousness that serves as the proof and our righteousness that we, as it says in verse 7, that we are as he is. That we're bearing his traits like a child would. So, once again, we have to ask, what does righteousness mean? It's one of those words that we don't use often, except for the righteous brothers. That we don't use often outside of 
the Bible and outside of Scripture. So what does it mean? And once again, in order to talk about righteousness, we have to talk about God. So it goes back full circle. God created us. And because of that, he gets to lay out how he meant for us to live. That's what it means to live rightly. You see, because I could have my definition of right, and you could have your definition of right. For example, for me, it might be right to root for the, for, uh, the Chicago Bears. For you, it might be right to root for the Green Bay Packers today. So who's right? Right. Well, okay, that's obvious. <laughs> Set that up. Okay, so, <laughs> um, but, but it, point, it, it, <laughs> it implies a certain point that we can have different definitions of what it means to be right. So whose, whose definition do we go by? It has to be God's because he's the author of life. He gets to tell us how, how, we, meant, how we were meant to live. That's living rightly. So righteousness could really mean right doingness. Right doingness. It's when we're living rightly how he meant for us to live. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live how he meant for us to live? Like a coin, I think it has two sides. There's a negative side and a positive side. So uh, we're going to start with the negative side of what, it, of what righteousness looks like. In other words, righteousness is what we turn from and what we turn to. So we'll start with what we turn from. Righteousness means resisting sin. That's the negative side. It's implied all throughout this passage. For example, in the second half of verse 9, if, you're, if you have your nose in it, in the NIV it says, they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. In other words, it implies that we're putting off sin in our lives. We're not tolerating as much as we can that we will go on sinning. We're putting it off. Like one uh, scholar said when he was commenting on a verse in this passage, he said, Knowing Christ means becoming involved in an all-out war against the practice of sinning. It means resisting. We keep resisting sin. So how? How do we resist sinning? Two times in this passage, we see the word abide. And each time it's used in a different way. And So these two abidings show us what it looks like. To resist sin. So number one, number one, abide in him. Look real quick at verse six. Real quick at verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This is talking about Jesus, abiding in Jesus. So what does it mean to abide in? It means living in something, essentially living in something. That's what you do with an abode. So this means living in Jesus. That's kind of an abstract concept. So how do we understand this? Earlier this week, uh, the staff was having lunch, and um, we were talking about the lemon soup at the Athenian room. I don't know if you've ever been there, but this lemon soup is amazing. Um, Man, I could use it right now. Okay. This lemon soup is, and we're talking about how wonderful it is. And uh, we're talking about, ah, oh, you know, how would you make it? And um, Ralph asked Santia, how do they get the rice like that? And Santia says, it's been soaking in the soup all day. And then it's like a light turned on for me. That's what it means to abide. Like soaking in, like taking on the flavors 
the properties of the thing you're soaking in. And so this is about just soaking in Jesus. Taking on his flavor. Taking on his properties. Like, like a piece of rice and lemon soup. Just spending time with him in the word and in prayer and with others who are pointing us to him. Meditating on the truth. Taking it in. That's what it means uh, to abide in him. And the context of verse 6, by the way, is verse 5, which says, In him there is no sin. It's talking about Jesus. So as we're abiding in him and taking on his flavor, in him there is no sin. And this is becoming more and more our flavor. So that's how we resist sin. Number two, the second abiding. Abiding in him. And then number two, what's abiding in us? Look really quick at verse 9. It says, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. So you see how this is different from the first? In the first, we abide in Jesus. And in the second, it's about God's seed abiding in us. We live in Jesus and then something lives in us at the same time. What is God's seed? I think it has to be the Holy Spirit. It, it, we just we can determine that based on the context and based on other writings by John in the Bible. This is about the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God's life-giving power pulsating inside of us. As it says elsewhere in Scripture, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead living inside of us. As it says elsewhere, greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And it's the Spirit of Jesus, so it's also about His character. Living inside of us, his holy, pure character, like in there, alive. The fruits of the Spirit, in other words, the effects of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The ability to say no, living inside of us. So I'm not saying all this means an automatic victory. Where you don't even have to try and boom, resisting sin. But it is talking about the power to say no. The power to keep fighting. The power to resist and with his help to overcome and break through and make strides forward. So that's the negative side, resisting sin. Now let's look at the positive side. Okay, we've, what we've turned from, now we're talking about what, we've turned, what we turned to. So righteousness involves resisting sin, and righteousness involves doing godly deeds. So what do I mean by godly? It's the, the things that show God's character. And when you think about it, as humans, this is how we were meant to live. As people created in the image of God, this is how we were meant to live. And so when we reflect who God is, that's us living rightly. That's how we were designed to live, to reflect God. So people who are righteous actively do godly deeds. And what that means is they actively reflect God's character. They reflect His holiness. They reflect His justice. And one more thing. They reflect his love. So listen, righteousness and, and loving can, can be treated as two separate categories. But they also overlap. They're also linked, right? Because if you're not a loving person, I don't think you can be called a righteous person. I don't, no one can say, oh man, that person really reflects God. But just one thing, they're not very loving. 
Or, oh man, that person, they really show us uh, what it means to live like God wants us to live. But they're like not really loving. I think that's impossible. So you see how these things are linked together? And actually John links them together. At the very, the very last statement in this passage, verse 10, the very last thing he ends with, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. So what does it mean to live rightly in God's eyes? Jesus summed it up one day. He said to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul summed it up. He says, the whole law, how we were meant to live, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love is indispensable to right doingness. So if we are going to practice righteousness, love has to be a part of the picture. So now, okay, what does it mean to love? There's a lot of definitions of love. Fortunately, right after John gets done penning this, he, he writes something else. Skip down. Uh, in the immediate context, immediately after John writes this, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, or in deed, but in deed and in truth. So love involves real actions. Love involves laying down our lives and, and seeing how we can really meet one another's needs. And, and yes, this is talking about what we do as individuals, but it doesn't stop there. It also talks about what we do together, what we do as a church. And so we love one another, and it also extends to how we love those around us. So as a church, this is where God has placed us. This place is where God has placed us. So this is about loving those around us here in deed and in truth. So that even if people disagree with where we draw the lines on, 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 on God's standards, that they would still be able to say, yeah, but they are really loving. Not just with words, but because they do this and do this and do this. It's like these people never stop loving this community. Wouldn't it be awesome if people would say, man, I sure hope that church doesn't go anywhere. I sure hope that church doesn't, doesn't become condos. Because, man, they love this community. So we love one another and we, we love those around us. Part of practicing righteousness is just that. This is how we live like children of God. This is how we know we've received this gift and opened it up and owned it. It's the response of righteousness. It's resisting sin. And it's practicing those godly deeds. Listen, I'm not saying we, we get it perfectly, but we, we have to ask the question, are we striving to resist sin? Are we striving to do godly deeds, including love? Do our lives give evidence of righteousness and love? That's the proof that we're children of God. So now you might be asking the question, and we're going to begin landing the plane here. Uh, right now you might be asking the question, how do I get from the, the, the first response to the second response? How do I get from the response of sin to the response of righteousness? Do I just try a little harder? Do I just beat myself in the head like, okay, come on, 
Be more righteous, be more righteous, be more righteous. The answer is found in the center of this passage. Let's look at verse 8. It says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Sin and death. That's his arena. That's his tactic. It's not that he makes people sin. We could never say the devil made me do it. But he does whatever he can to keep us in chains to our own sin. Locked into that first response of sin. But one of the very reasons Jesus came was on that first Christmas day was to destroy the works of the devil, to undo this arena, to unlock this response. How did he do it? Did you know that this verse here, verse 8 here, is related to the very first Christmas verse in the Bible? Way back at the beginning of the Bible, way back in the book of Genesis, the first humans had sinned. And Satan had led them to do it. You see, that's his works. Like verse 8 says, his works from the beginning. He was behind it. They had done it, but he was behind it. And then God makes a promise. And this is the very first Christmas verse in the Bible. He says, a descendant is coming. He, He looks at the devil and he makes a promise. He says, as the NIV puts it, the offspring of the woman will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. He he promises that a descendant will come. And that he will be wounded. But in the very act of being wounded, he will crush the devil. In other words, he will destroy the devil's works. He will destroy sin. And then Jesus came. And at the cross he was wounded. But in that very act he crushed the devil. In that very act he destroyed the devil's work. He destroyed sin. How? By taking it all on himself. By absorbing it. By taking all my sin. By taking all your sin. By taking it all. Even though he never sinned. He absorbed it as if it was his own. And paid for it fully at the cross. And that's why we can be set free. So that's how we get from the response of sin to the response of righteousness. It's not by trying to clean ourselves up or beat ourselves in the head. First and foremost, it's about being set free. Yes, righteousness takes effort, but it always starts with being set free. And that's what Jesus came to do on the very first Christmas. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the chains of our sin. It's not that we no longer sin but that we're no longer held under the power of sin. Because it's been fully paid for. Sometimes I'm going through old mail, and all of a sudden I'll see a parking ticket, and I'm like, (laughs) But then I realize, oh, no, 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 no. I paid for that one. It's not over me anymore. Likewise, Our sin was paid for by someone. It is not over us anymore. You see, we're free. We're free. And that's how we get from the response of sin to the response of righteousness. It's about being set free. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And um, I just want to sit on this for a second. As they get ready.
So, so this, this gift, this lavish, loving, costly gift of being called the children of God is held out to us. First John chapter 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. This is held out to us. But our passage today asks the question, what will we do with it? In other words, how will we respond? And so I just want to take a moment to sit and really think, what is my response? You see, I felt, I felt led to this passage, and in a sense we're led to every passage. But I felt uniquely led to this one, that we need to hear it. That we need to look at our lives and say, what is my response? And listen, we're all imperfectly sanctified. All of us who are Christians are on a journey, and it ebbs and flows and we struggle. But the key word is struggle. And if we look at our lives and we see that attitude of lawlessness, and we see that practice, that ongoing thing, that we see that first response, then we ask the question, God, am I? Like, have I, am I just walking around as if I've got this incredible gift, but I haven't done anything with it? So listen, uh, if, that's, if, if you're reflecting on this and, and thinking, well, maybe my life does look like that, then I want to invite you to respond and, and ask God, God, is this me? And if so, then I want to be your child. And if that's true, to uh, surrender your life to Jesus and uh, to, to just receive what he's done for you at the cross and um, to ask him to lead your life and living like God's child. And um, I went back and forth on this, uh, but if, if that's you, I, th- I think I'd like for us to mark that. And so if that's you, I, I'm, during this last song, I'm going to go in the back, and, uh, and you can meet me back there, and maybe a few people will meet me back there, and we could just pray for one another. That's it, just to mark this moment in our lives. And uh, if nobody comes, that's all right. I'd rather you be invited than not. Because this is the best thing that ever happened to me. And number two, okay. All right, let's land this plane. Number two, if you are a believer, I think another response this is calling us to is to to ask ourselves, am I resisting sin? Sometimes we begin to lay down. And I think our passage today is a is a challenge to renew our commitment to that fight. It, the pastor talked about the two abidings. And to fight by abiding in Jesus. And that's not just something we do by ourselves. Abiding by other people pointing you to God. So I just want to encourage you to ask someone else to come alongside next to you and help you fight. And to resist sin. That's the second response. The third is... Um, for, for believers, is my life marked by doing those deeds of righteousness, including love? And so I'd like for us to ask, 
What are some practical ways we can love those around us starting this Christmas season? To be marked by love as individuals and as people. So why does any of this make sense today? Because we're not stuck in one response. We don't have to be chained to our own sin. Because we remember at Christmas the promised one. The one foretold from the very beginning. The offspring of the woman who came to destroy the works of the devil. He has come. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word that helps us. So I pray this morning that you would help us to see our response, that you would guide each one of us in the response you're laying on our hearts. Your word says the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would move among us, And help us, help us to know how to respond to your word this morning. And God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that sin is not the last word. Thank you that there's nothing we we have done or can do that's bigger than your grace. That there's no sin in our lives that the cross hasn't destroyed. And so I pray that we would embrace the work that Jesus has done for us and walk forward in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.